Deuteronomy chapter 25, we have another Old Testament law that seems very strange to us and very uncomfortable, but let's see what the Lord is teaching us through this case law. In verse 11, it reads, Deuteronomy chapter 25, When men strive together one with another, and the wife of the one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him. So there's these two, and they're fighting. The wife is trying to intervene and and help her husband. And putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets. Then thou shalt cut off her hand. Thine eye shall not pity her. Okay, it's, like I say, a very awkward and strange uh, case law here in the Old Testament, tucked away in Deuteronomy 25. And uh, it's strange to our ears, of course. But uh, if we uh, think about this sensibly, um, when it talks about the secrets, it's talking about the private parts of a man. And when you think about that, obviously in our perverted age, uh, all we can think of is on, on one level, a very base level. But really, the the secrets, um, that refers to that which, where our children come from, okay, and it's, it's how we, it's how we reproduce and create ongoing generation. And so, in the most general way to think about it, it would be your future. Let's just put it that way. Your future. Your future generation. Your future family. And that's the way I've been thinking about this passage. One's future. And so, the the case law has it so that if there's this fight going on and it's heightened um, situation, and the wife tries to come to the aid of her husband, and she uh, she does this that um, may jeopardize uh, the future of this man, as far as his children are concerned. It is seen as a great evil in the eyes of the Lord. Doesn't matter how necessary it seemed to be in the present to destroy or jeopardize the future is seen to be a great evil. So if we think of it in that general principle, then I think we can make all kinds of relevant application for us. The way I think about this is often, uh, I I went to Bob Jones here, I went to college here back in the 90s, and they used to have these sayings uh, on the tops of the 
the blackboards in the classrooms, uh, old sayings by Dr. Bob Sr. And one of the sayings I remember distinctly was, don't sacrifice the future on the altar of the present. And think about that. Don't sacrifice the future on the altar of the present. We're talking about basically the future versus the present. Anything that damages or jeopardizes the future generation is evil. It's wicked. No matter how quote-unquote necessary you think it is in the present. You can have all kinds of applications here. Some of the ones I was thinking about is when people will sacrifice their family for pleasure. For example, if they feel that they need to uh, take their family to a location where there's a better paying job or or maybe there's just um, more pleasure, more access to fun things. Um, but there's no church there. There's no, no, no consideration given to church, really, at all. It's kind of an afterthought. That's jeopardizing your future, your family, your children, your offspring, for something very temporal, for something very immediate. Churches do this too. They will sacrifice their future and the future generation for pragmatism. They will employ pragmatic methods in order to get immediate results, let's say. But they're sacrificing something. I remember Dr. Sexton one time in a sermon uh, making reference to this and he was talking about how churches are going more and more into a very world-centric mode, very, very worldly, and basically it just looks no different from, from the world, no difference. And he was saying the thing that they often don't think about is if that's where they are today, what will be for their children? What will be left for them? Or are they going to keep going even more and just keep moving with this pragmatic approach? Whatever they can do to bring the people in. And if you want to take a third application, which is, I would say, the most broad application, and that would be when people will sacrifice their own souls on the altar of the present. They don't think about their own future, their eternal future. They're only thinking about the present. And the necessities of the present. You know, in this particular case law, it was needful. And people can argue that, you know, we'll, we'll 
think about salvation, God, heaven, all those issues, after I'm done with these pressing matters, it's a little bit how, um, was it Agrippa who said that, come back some other convenient season. Not right now. It's not convenient right now. So the present was taking priority over the future. And so you have that as an application, the broadest possible application. And as I say, according, just like you see here in this case law, it doesn't matter just how n- necessary you can argue the present is, how necessary your job is, how necessary um, whatever. You should not, you cannot, it is evil to sacrifice the future on the altar of the present. Uh, there was a note here that I made about George Mueller. I'm trying to remember it now, but I, I think that the connection was with, in his day, he he noted that people were having a really hard time trusting God. And it went something like this. He felt like his people in the congregation would be greatly helped if they just spent more time in the Word and in prayer and giving themselves to these things. And the people would often tell him, I would love to, Mr. Mueller, spend more time, but I don't have the time. I have to work. And then they would work early into the late hours I have to feed my family how, how is my family going to be fed if I give this time over to God over here and so in theory they, they, they agreed with Mr. Mueller but in practice they were not able to trust God and so they continued to live their lives and of course this was this was the great motivation that George Mueller had to build an orphanage to prove to an unbelieving church, primarily, that God answers prayer. He can be trusted. He's trustworthy. Now, how does all of this apply to us? I mean, this is all very fine, and I believe this is the correct gospel interpretation of this case law, but how does it apply to us as I was thinking about this? Well, I was thinking that is this not the reason why so few people really pray? I mean, there might be uh, a lot of reasons, but when you think about it, prayer is an investment into the future. Prayer is not immediate enough for our carnal uh, preferences. We want now. We have things to do. I mean, I, I think about my life. I have things to do. I have a whole stack of things to do right now. <laughs> and so, 
prayer seems like it seems like uh, a waste of time for many people because it's 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 an investment into the future. You are praying for things that are not right this immediate. Now there are some things that that could fall into that category, of course, but you are praying for the future. You're praying for your children. You are praying for the advance of the kingdom going forward. And so, why do you have so few people really wanting to pray, even in a prayer meeting like this? There might be a little bit of this brought into the reasoning, is that it's an investment in the future. And we are such creatures of now that we want to see and we want to do things that will affect us now. We want to check it off our list now. We have things to do. You know, it was Martin Luther who said, I have so much to do. He said, I'm so busy today that I have to get up even earlier to spend even longer before the Lord in prayer. That was his mentality. That's the correct mentality. Because prayer, though primarily it is an investment in the future, it is so important. So, this is that strange Old Testament case law, and I simply want us to remember not to sacrifice the future, our future, the future of our families, the future of our churches on the, on the altar of the immediate, of the present. Amen.